wanted to, to just begin with, with you, John. You, you talked a lot about the New Testament and the reliability of the New Testament and that history and trajectory. I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about oral tradition, and in particular the oral tradition of the Gospels um, in the transmission of the Scriptures. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, John, at the end of his Gospel, says, I won't even attempt to capture uh, the significance of Christ. And... Um, and we know that there were uh, several sayings of Jesus that were not recorded in the Gospels. Uh, technically, they're called agrapha, uh, which is not altogether reliable. The Greek means not written down, but many of them actually were written down. And uh, you can read these in various collections. Uh, but we find them uh, in the Apostolic Fathers. Uh, we actually find some in Muslim literature which is interesting. Uh, but of course, Muslims view Jesus as a great prophet. And we even find some agrapha uh, in India, mm. uh, which is interesting, going back to, they would say, Thomas and, mm-hmm. and some of the things passed on to them. Um, some, of the, some of the sayings are, are interesting, uh, but uh, they are problematic in that we don't have any certainty about mm-hmm. provenance. And so I would not recommend using them in, in, in preaching um, because uh, we have, like I said in my talk, early witnesses that say these four Gospels come from the apostles or those that were associates of the apostles, which takes you right to really the mouth of Jesus. Uh, so um, we know that oral tradition... Um, had an important role to play, obviously, before the Gospels were written down. Uh, but they were written down very early. I mean, they were all composed by the end of the first century within a generation of Jesus' own life. And during the second century, you do see sort of a mixture of oral tradition and alluding to the written Gospels. But I'd say by the third century, would you say that's fair? By the third century, you're really... It's primarily allusions to the Gospels themselves, and mm-hmm. most of the orality or the oral traditions uh, have disappeared. So, okay. Um, and um, Dr. Crudup, I, I was uh, told in one of the, the questions, I did not see it, but um, that in the recent ETS, Dr. Mu argued that we should actually get rid of literal transi- translations yeah. of the Scripture. Yeah. Um, how would you respond to that other than what you just did? Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll just say we disagree. Okay. Um, for reasons just mentioned. Okay. Um, but the, the reason is that, now this is Greek New Testament and the Hebrew Bible, these are the words of God. They're the very words of God. They're the only book in the world that contains the very words of God. And we need to treat them as seriously and respectfully and faithfully as we absolutely can. It's a solemn responsibility. Um, and I think essentially literal translations do the best that they can in that responsibility. So, yes, Doug Moo did argue against that. We disagree. I, um, I remember walking across the campus at Trinity and saying, Doug, um, you know, I'd like to ask you to be on the committee translating the ESV, but I guess you've already joined the NIV committee. And he said, yes, uh, I can't be on both. So, interesting. Our yeah. paths diverge. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's a different philosophy. They would argue they gain understandability. Mm-hmm. And it's more, more modern English. 
Mm -hmm. um, so that's just a difference. Okay. And and I should say, Josh, what I try to say in every public forum, I, I disagree certainly with the NIV and the New Living even more with their philosophy of translation. Um, but I want to be careful, and I just I, it, I I had a little bit of humor in the presentation just because it, just to keep everybody awake. <laughs> Um, Mainly yourself. But yeah, me. <laughs> right. But um, the people at Zondervan and the people on the NIV Translation Committee, in spite of the fact that I have been among the most vocal critics of that translation over the last 15 years, they have been unfailingly gracious and kind and conversational and relationally uh, blameless in all their personal relationships with me. And I'm so thankful for that. They've been Christ-like in their attitude. Um, toward me and others who are critical of them. And it has meant that the controversy has been respectful and carried on at, I think, uh, a level of argument and fact, not personality. And I'm thankful for that, and I want to give public expression to that. Thank you. Um, I have a, a question that I thought was helpful uh, that was texted in. And um, let me just read this and whoever feels so led to, to respond. Uh, maybe this might be good for you, Peter. Um, it says, if we rely on the manuscripts that we do have, which are not inspired or wholly reliable, then based on what methodology do you conclude that the original manuscripts are inspired, the conclusion seems arbitrary. Mm -hmm. If I understand the question rightly, um, the... Uh, questioner is concerned about how you could get um, infallible information uh, from a fallible source. So I mean, in, in one sense, I, I'd say there are plenty of analogies that you can get infallible information from the internet, which is a very fallible source. Mm -hmm. um, so you, know, you can get correct information, there's plenty of it out there. Um, and I think I'd also want to say, what we can do with the New Testament manuscripts and the Old Testament manuscripts is we can have a great deal of certainty. Now, what's, uh, we, we got um, a very good uh, transmission with both Testaments, which gives you a rational confidence that something has been handed down correctly to you. Now, what's happened is, over the last couple of centuries, the burden of proof has shifted. So if you read commentators from 200 years ago or more, they are presuming that they have access to the original text um, unless someone, uh, there's some overwhelming evidence to the contrary, whereas what happens nowadays is people say um, that they need a huge amount of evidence before they actively believe that they have the original. And I think that's all part of the shift in epistemology that happens since David Hume, um, that, that people no longer want to say that they know anything. Uh, they just have increasing levels of confidence until, <laughs> as a shortcut, you say you know something. It's really just 99 point something percent uh, certain belief. Um, and I think that's all just completely wrong. Um, that we, uh, as, as Christians, promote uh, an epistemology where we say we really do know things. And I think that um, God speaks to us in such a way that we can be certain that that is... Um, it is uh, him speaking. And my certainty uh, about, let's say, the wording in 2 Peter 3.10, or my lack of certainty about that, does not in any way make me less certain about Deuteronomy 4. So what you, what you find is God is uh, speaking across the scriptures. We have very good witnesses 
um, uh, to these things. And um, the fact that I have some personal uncertainty about something um, does not, in any sense, make any of the rest of things certain. So we know we're, we're certain about a huge amount. Now, the other thing I need to do is unpack this word certain, which is a very ambiguous term, because we, t we sometimes say, and e even Bible translations, even Bible translations that I would recommend, sometimes have in their footnotes, <laughs> the text of the Hebrew is uncertain. That is completely wrong. Um, the text of the Bible is completely certain. God is completely certain about it, you see. Um, uh, it, what they should really say is, we, the translators, are so ignorant that we are uncertain. <laughs> see? Um, and, and, and they tend not to do that. So I feel that um, um, the, the certainty of God's truth is not in any way diminished by my uncertainty about it. You know, and I think sometimes people have just got things completely wrong where they think that their level of personal confidence somehow affects the absoluteness of whether, you know, um, God has spoken. So I suppose I'd want to respond with those things. Um, or more briefly, I think you can do a ton of evidence to show, for instance, that Jesus, um, you know, is historically reliable and believed in the Old Testament scriptures and you can work from him to say he had a view that scriptures are entirely true. You could do that route as well. Oh, very good. Um, now, I'm curious. We've been talking a lot about Greek manuscripts and that kind of thing. Do we think that Jesus and the apostles used Greek versions of the Masoretic text? <laughs> um, I believe that... Um, when in, in uh, Nazareth uh, he was handed the scriptures, that would have been in Hebrew. Uh, but I also believe that Jesus sometimes taught in uh, Greek. Um, and uh, obviously the Bible says that he taught in Greek um, because you've got the Sermon on the Mount with all of his alliteration. I mean, the look at the Beatitudes, the first four all began with the letter P. Uh, and they have, um, you know, pure in heart, pure in heart have got the same letters in. And uh, persecuted for righteousness begin with the same letters, and uh, poor in spirit begin with the same letters, poor in spirit. Uh, it's all, um, you know, so. Um, but yes, I do think that um, uh, he uh, studied the scriptures uh, and would have studied them uh, both in uh, Hebrew and in Greek. The um, burial inscriptions on tombs from the first century in Israel where you write, you know, beloved wife of so-and-so or, you know, beloved husband of so-and-so and things, about one-third of them are in Hebrew, about one-third of them are in Aramaic, and about one-third of them are in Greek. So, uh, like, French-speaking Canada today is bilingual with French and English. Belgium is trilingual. So I think that Palestine in the first century was trilingual speaking Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek. Yeah, particularly Galilee. I mean, the Syrophoenician woman most likely spoke Greek. So that would be one conversation that had to take place in that language, I would think. This is a phenomenon unknown to Americans right, about right. being bilingual. But, uh, yeah. but um, Europeans are frequently. Yeah, oh, very good. Well, now, as, as pastors, we have a lot of pastors, young men, uh, women preparing for ministry and, and that sort of thing uh, here today. Um, how would you encourage them to deal with texts like Mark 16, 9 to 20, where you, you get these double brackets. Um, you know, you're preaching expositionally right through Mark, and you come to this text, and you're like, what do I do with this? It, footnote says that it's not in the earliest manuscripts, and yet it's here in my Bible, even in the ESV. So what do I do? 
<laughs> Professor of New Jersey. Right. Uh, there are actually uh, two uh, endings in the manuscript tradition, and then there's actually a third that amplifies the longer ending uh, that's in your Bible, and sometimes it's in italics. And so uh, clearly there was a lot of confusion in the early church over how Mark uh, was to end. We do know that Mark was uh, last in the order of the Gospels in that Western order I was talking about earlier, which means that it was the last in a codex where you had uh, three Gospels that have spectacular stories about Jesus' post-resurrection appearances. And then you get to Mark, and it's wah-wah. I mean... <laughs> It's my technical expression for it. Um, <laughs> where, uh, of course, the resurrection is proclaimed uh, by the man in white, uh, but it's a bit, you could see from that perspective how it would be a bit underwhelming. When you look at the, the longer ending, I have my students translate it, and they unanimously, when they go through the Greek, they recognize that it, it has a different style, it's a different vocabulary. Uh, the manuscript evidence for it is terrible. Uh, it's not in our earlier manuscripts. Uh, and, and so it's, it's very unlikely um, after verse 8 that those remaining verses are original to Mark. If you read the words carefully, you can see that the author is basically summarizing uh, Luke, the end of Luke, uh, and also taking a little bit of the um, Great Commission and kind of bringing those things together. In fact, it's all Luke and a bit of Matthew, and all you're left with is uh, poison and snakes. Uh, and we see where that's helped gotten in parts of the country. So it's um, <laughs> it's uh, so I, I I encourage students that you know learn the languages to come to their own uh, conclusion about it. But um, um, the evidence is that uh, that was uh, added on to provide a more suitable ending to Mark, probably in a codex. Uh, and also there's a bit of asceticism in it. Um, the tone in which Jesus interacts with the disciples, for example, when he first encounters them, he, he rebukes them <laughs> for their lack of faith. And it's interesting because in the other Gospels, you know, it's shalom, I love you, come in for a hug. Well, not, you know what I'm saying. Um, and so uh, there's a bit of a foreign tone to it as well. And, and so I personally would not preach it. So um, you would get to basically Mark 16, verse 8, and you say, we're done here. Yeah, and I love it. It's a beautiful ending, actually, if you're sensitive to Mark. If, the, the longer ending doesn't resolve Mark's narrative. It introduces things that Mark doesn't even bring up in his story. But if you read Mark carefully, what you'll notice is that right after uh, Jesus' baptism and time in the wilderness, which Mark gives a very short account of, the very first thing that Mark depicts is the calling of Peter. And at the end, Jesus, or the, the man in white, the angel, tells the women to go tell the apostles. And what's interesting is he goes further and he says, tell the apostles and Peter that I have been raised. Um, in 2006, Richard Bauckham uh, published an important book on the eyewitness testimony of the Gospels, and he talks about an, an inclusio of eyewitness testimony, which is that Mark relied on the memories of Peter, and what he did is he was showing that Peter is the frame 
uh, around his entire presentation, uh, grounding everything that happened in the authority. And the reason he brings up Peter at the end is, of course, Peter would be the rock that would validate the post-resurrection appearances. The last thing I'll say about it is we think that Mark was published uh, in Rome around the Neronian persecution, uh, 64. And at that time, it was very difficult to be a Christian. And so you could see how Mark would frame it where these women are terrified, because that's the last verse in verse 8, is the women are terrified. They know Jesus has been raised from the dead. They've been given that announcement, but they're afraid. And I think that's how the Roman Christians felt. Uh, in the first century. We know that Jesus is raised. We've been given that commission. And it's almost as if, pa- if it, that, it's almost as if Mark pastorally is saying, okay, these women, you identify with these women, but what are you going to do with the good news? Are you going to go out there and proclaim the gospel anyway? And so anyway, I find it to be a beautiful ending, a powerful ending. And to be frank, it annoys me <laughs> with these longer endings that were added on. Um, so, Peter, if we were to find uh, some of these other letters to the Corinthians, would they be inspired? Um, I would want to distinguish between inspired, um, in the sense that uh, God breathed these words, and things that God um, inspired and wanted to be passed on mm-hmm. from generation to generation in Scripture. Mm-hmm. That is, presumably, God spoke often to Elijah and Elisha things that have not been put into Scripture. So we've got to remember that um, every, God has been speaking. He gives commands to angels all the time, presumably, uh, and those words aren't words of Scripture. I mean, if we speak, I mean, just think how many words God speaks, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you know, the most interesting being, entity that could possibly exist must be speaking all the time. Um, so we've got to distinguish between words that God has spoken and words that God has spoken and intended to be part of his scripture, his written deposit, to be used by his people to understand who he is and to spread the message of that. Right. Um, so I'm not bothered about um, um, claims that there might be more inspired things. Um, however, uh, what I would say is... Uh, what we have in the Old and New Testaments is, um, in the Old Testament, it's it's the uh, deposit of God's communication to his um, people of the Old Testament era. Uh, that's a complete uh, group uh, and, and a, com- uh, a complete thing. And what we have in the New Testament is things that are uh, connected uh, in with with the with the time of Christ's um, first coming and uh, earthly ministry, and uh, connected with the people who. Um, were commissioned to spread the message of that, about that. What it would be very difficult ever to do is reach any degree of confidence that any new thing that you had found that hadn't been passed down with a continuous transmission was actually part of um, the things that had come from that group. Um, even if you did think it came from that group, you wouldn't have any reason to believe that God had intended that to yeah. be part of the group of writings which yeah. he wanted his church to base themselves mm-hmm. uh, upon. Uh, so I don't think we will discover any uh, further um, uh, such writings, but even if we did, I don't think you would know them to be such. And um, the um, what we have to remember is that God... Um, 
does expect us to act consistently with our conscience and our understanding of him. And, and so, um, if God, uh, wants to make himself known effectively to his church, um, and is going to hold them to account in final judgment, then he will do so in a way, uh, such that they could not, uh, responsibly and morally believe otherwise. Uh, and that's why I think that the New Testament comes to us with um, that uh, really um, compelling evidence so that you cannot responsibly uh, believe otherwise. And I just simply cannot imagine that any other thing would ever get to that level. Very helpful answer, Peter. Um, I would add that John's evidence tracing acceptance of these canonical writings back, 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 back to you have people who knew the apostles talking about it. That indicates to me that during the time the church was deciding what books were part of scripture or not, we had living apostles still present in the church. And we don't have that anymore. Guiding this decision. Peter saying, or Paul saying, Peter saying, yeah, Mark's gospel is what I wrote. Paul saying, Luke acts, that's faithful to what I teach. That kind of thing. Some scholars have been arguing recently that Paul chose the letters he wanted us to have. What a surprise. It would, it would make sense because... <laughs> exactly. Second Peter, if Peter wrote it, and I accept that, then he's writing, it must have been just after Paul died. And it's interesting that at the end of Second Timothy, Paul asks Timothy to bring writings to him. Parchments. Uh, parchments. And again, it's speculation, but it would make sense. Obviously, he would keep the autographs. He would keep his original letters uh, that he used pastorally to minister to the churches because people were corrupting his writings, his letters, mm-hmm. even while he was alive. Interesting. Um, and what's interesting is Paul himself mentions letters that he had written that are not in our canon. Uh, there may be four letters to the Corinthians and, of course, the letter to the Laodiceans uh, that he mentions. And um, the thing is, is people say, well, then the church lost them, and if we find them, Third Corinthians, well, then we've got to put them in the canon. I think that's very unlikely. I, I think Paul knew the letters uh, that were going to be his legacy and um, he gave, this is just speculation, but Luke is with them at his death. <laughs> hmm. And um, it just, it would make sense that there would have been a circle of, G- of Paul's disciples there in Rome that would have gathered his letters, copied them. And as far as we can tell in the manuscript tradition, we get a Pauline collection as far back as I can go. Uh, and so it just makes sense to me. That's very good. Well, um, our time's about up. I wanted to just close with a, a question uh, for you, Dr. Grudem. Um, one thing I've just been delighted in, in in my friendship with you is seeing how devotional you are. You're not you're not just an ivory tower theologian. Um, you really do have a, a warm love for Jesus. And uh, someone asked, how do you use your knowledge of reliability of the Bible to deepen your relationship with God? Read it. How do you use... <laughs> Your knowledge of the reliability of the Bible to deepen your relationship with God. I read it. Yeah, oh, you read it. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you said reread it. No. Thank you. I mean, I read it every morning, and I read it this morning. It was Psalm 49 and uh, Matthew 6. Hmm. And um, 
I'm just reading it for seeing application to my life and things I'm praying about. Hmm. Um, personally, I just I have to maintain that every day, keep my walk with God fresh. Hmm. Um, so I just found that when I don't do that, everything goes wrong. So you're studying these issues of the reliability of the scriptures. You're constantly pouring yourself into the scriptures. Yeah, very good. Well, or yes, seeking to submit to them yeah. and be under their authority and be taught by them day by day. Very good. Well, uh, thank you so much uh, for coming and uh, being a part of our conference. I've I've asked Chris Dawkins to come and to uh, close us in prayer. So, Chris.